Good morning. Um, we're reading this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Peter heals a crippled beggar. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple, called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So my thesis for this morning is this. I think that the least interesting thing about someone who is homeless is the fact that they are homeless. There is so much more to a person than where they sleep at night or how much money they have available to spend. And yet the irony is that for most people who live without stable housing, this is the defining aspect of their lives particularly in terms of their interactions with others. And as we come to the end of our short series we've had over the last few weeks looking at justice issues in which we've considered a Christian approach to rethinking the benefits system, the importance of ecological justice and the welcoming of refugees. Today we're going to be thinking about homelessness and what a Christian approach to this might begin to look like. The scene which Luke paints for us in our reading this morning from the Book of Acts is as contemporary as it is ancient. It could be any street in any city in any country. From Bloomsbury to Bangalore, the picture is as familiar as it is troubling. A man has placed himself on the pavement at a busy intersection and is begging for money. And if you've walked the streets of London over the years, you will be no stranger to those who sit and beg whether they present with a disability or a note written on a piece of cardboard, the message, the request is constant. Please, can I have some money? And I wonder, what, what do you do? Do you walk on by, ignoring the person to the best of your ability, pretending not to have noticed them? Do you perhaps genuinely not notice them? having become so habituated to their presence that it is indeed possible to pass by unseen. Do you mutter a prayer for them? Do you give them some money? Do you make eye contact and offer an apology 
or perhaps more accurately, an expression of sorrow for their condition before moving on? Do you offer to buy them a coffee or a sandwich? Do you stop for a conversation? Try and find out a bit more about their circumstances? Well, I've done all of these things and more. And what breaks my heart is that I genuinely don't know if any of it has actually made any difference. And it was no different in the first century with our anonymous friends sitting outside the temple in Jerusalem, strategically positioned in prime location by the gate called Beautiful. In a scene with disturbing similarities to street theatre, he's carefully positioned himself to kind of contrast his own deformed body with the soaring architecture of the temple. Carefully constructing a scene to elicit maximum sympathy and, of course, cash from those entering the temple. And the sight of this man would have posed a troubling question to those passing by. How could a person with their eyes turned to God ignore the plight of one of God's suffering children? So I'm sure that many of those who came to the temple gave to the beggar at the beautiful gate, believing that by doing so, they were offering this unfortunate man a tangible expression of the care that God had for him. There was a strand of ancient thought that regarded misfortune in life as a curse from God, as if in some way a person deserved their deficiency. And in our sermons earlier this year, earlier in the summer from the book of Job, we saw how that ancient text challenged this way of looking at things. Who deserves to be uh, living with a disability or whatever? That, that was all challenged in the book of Job. But here in this scene before the temple, we find an ancient echo of perhaps the more contemporary debates we often hear around the deserving or undeserving poor. Those who enjoyed power, wealth and health in the ancient world, as indeed in the modern world, tended to believe that they had received these things as a gift from God that they somehow deserved which then left those from whom such benefits had been withheld by God or fate or whatever to fulfil the role of undeserving scrounger. Well, it's into this context that Peter utters his famous line. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. And on such a sentence, the world turns upside down. Because in this simple statement from Peter, the basic transaction which lay at the root of the Jewish temple system's charity was subverted. The beggar knew how it was supposed to work. The worshippers knew how it was supposed to work. The temple officials knew how it was supposed to work. The way it was supposed to work was that the temple system represented middle-class religion primarily populated by those who had money, and the wealthy worshippers' job on their way in to worship was to give alms to the poor. And the job of the poor was to receive the handouts. It was a tried and tested system and everyone felt better in the process. The small acts of kindness directed towards an undeserving or even culpable poor 
appeased the consciences of the rich and simultaneously kept the poor in a state of dependency and disempowerment. It was a system of mutual meeting of needs, but one which was ultimately powerless to effect genuine change. It was into this context that Peter and John conducted their transgressive act against this system of inequality that everyone had become so complicit in. They didn't give alms to the beggar. They didn't give him silver or gold or even a few copper coins. They refused the transaction of handing over money in exchange for a temporarily salved conscience. Instead, Peter looked the beggar in the eye, reached out a hand and lifted him up. This was deeply subversive stuff because it challenged all the implicit and unspoken assumptions about the way the world works. In most societies, including our own, the poor are not really to be lifted up they're not to be looked upon as equals. They're to be ignored, vilified, blamed, stigmatized, done unto, and institutionalized and disempowered. If you don't believe me, just read some of the newspapers. In the first century, the poor were there to provide a, a kind of a weak, to the temple systems strong. And I don't think it's so different in our world today. The poor are useful in a number of ways. They're there to be blamed when necessary for the ills of society, scapegoated we might say. But also the acts of charity that can be done to them help appease the conscience of those who have money without actually changing anything. And the thing is, if Peter and John had simply given money to this man, they would have then become complicit in the very system that was keeping him in his poverty. But they didn't give him money, they took a different and dare I say more Christ-like path, which challenged the very system and opened the door to transformation. Doing this was not without its consequences, and the traumatic events of the next three chapters of Acts all arise from this specific incident of healing a lame man in the temple grounds. They discovered that if you take actions to subvert systems of control, if you distort the imbalances of power on which our hierarchical religious institutions are built and which shore up our stratified societal structures. Well, those powers have a way of fighting back, seeking to close down the transgressive power of raising someone up whose place in life has already been determined as disadvantaged. So Peter and John were arrested and put on trial for this. And dare I say, it may also be the case with us. So let's bring this story up to date a bit and hear it speak to our world. When we eventually get back to our building, we will enter it through our own beautiful doorway. 
Abbey Gate Beautiful with its Normanesque arch, has always marked the entrance to a building from which the church has ministers to the poor and the disadvantaged. And our historically strategic location on the boundary between wealth and privilege in Bloomsbury and the grinding poverty of the St Giles slums speaks of a commitment from the very beginning to reach out to the diverse communities of need around the church and nothing has changed in 170 years. The congregation of Bloomsbury has always sought to bring wealth and poverty together, but to do so in ways that are genuinely transformational, that go beyond a handout. Bloomsbury at its best has always sought to challenge the transactional basis of, of, what is, of much of what's classed as charitable giving. So Bloomsbury over the years has never been just about giving to the poor. Bloomsbury is a church which from its founding day has sought to reach out and touch, where we've extended the hand of friendship to raise people up, where we do not stand on our dignity. And so we have a long history of effective engagement with those who are homeless and disadvantaged. And this hasn't stopped. Did you know that even during lockdown, uh, people from Bloomsbury have been very active working with other churches through London citizens. Uh, we were behind a campaign to reopen the toilets of the West End, many of which were closed during the early stages of lockdown, and to get better sanitary provision for those still living on the streets. We're currently in early stages of conversation about ways in which better mental health support might be offered to those who live with homelessness. The thing is, the best way of offering the love of Christ to those on the streets is changing. If you rewind back to when Bloomsbury started cooking food for those who are homeless, that was the dominant need. These days, uh, Dawn has often said, it's quite hard to go homeless or hungry, uh, homeless and hungry in London. There are agencies far better equipped than us ensuring that people are fed. So as we consider our future engagement as a church with those who live without housing, my challenge for us today is to start thinking differently about how we might reach out to them in the name of Christ. We've already changed the way we were doing Sunday lunches and regrettably, I think they're unlikely to be starting anytime soon in any form. But we did put a stop to the long queue for food outside the gate of the church. And that doesn't mean we stopped caring for those who are homeless. We were doing really creative things on a Tuesday evening with the evening centre. But the question now going forwards, I think, is what might it take for us to reach out the hand and lift people up as Peter did, so that they no longer need to queue for food? What would it mean for us to look people in the eye and see the person behind the circumstance? What if we could discover that the least interesting thing about a homeless person is that they are homeless? Lockdown has forced us to stop many of our current engagements with those who are homeless. 
from Sunday lunch to the Tuesday evening centre to the choir with no name, all of those have come to a long-term halt. And it is quite likely that some, if not all of these, will be unable to restart in the foreseeable future. But the need is not gone. So my challenge for us as we think about the future is to ask the question of what it is that we can do before God that is genuinely transformational of the needs of our city. Let's ask what the needs are and be prepared to listen to those who might tell us that the genuine need is not perhaps what we think it is. Can we find ourselves willing to let go of our own programmes and structures and instead to construct new systems that are built on relationships that are genuinely transformational? Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but this I give you. And it doesn't have to be about giving alms or providing food or offering a service that users can access. There may be different and dare I say better ways of creating places of refuge, of safety, of friendship, of creativity through our congregation, where each person is known and valued as a person loved and unique in God's sight, where we take them by the hand and raise them up. Transformation is God's responsibility, not ours. We're not the ones who have to do the miracle. We just have to be prepared to look someone in the eye and reach out a hand of openness and trust to see the individual behind the circumstance. And this is a risky task. It's dangerous because it's disruptive. It messes with our systems and it plays havoc with our expectations, every bit as much as Peter and John's actions outside the beautiful gates to the temple subverted the systems that the temple had in place to ensure the poor got just enough money to tide them over until tomorrow when they could come back again. I suspect that in the example of Peter and John, we can find a model for our own future engagement with the homeless, where we resist the seductions of superficial solutions, such as throwing money and resources at a problem, and where instead we invest in relationships and holistic engagement, making ourselves vulnerable and responding creatively to the needs of the city. Bloomsbury's ministry to the homeless is not finished, far from it, but it will have to change and evolve as the needs of the city evolve. But in that change, we will discover a rich resource from scripture, calling us into paths of transformation, not just for those we are ministering to, but for ourselves as well. Thank you, Simon. Before we come to our time of discussion, where I'll invite the panellists to contribute, as well as your conversation in the chat, we're just going to have a moment of reflection to consider what we've heard. If our panellists for today would like to put on their cameras and their microphones. So we have Solomon, Tommaso and Jean-Marc and Evelyn. 
Thank you for being willing to share with us this morning. I find this particular topic really challenging. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you all have to think about it, but also in the chat function. So do share already. Some of you are commenting and sharing some reflections. So I'll come to those shortly. Um, and I, I found it fascinating what Simon started with around this idea of marginality can become the focus of description that those who don't experience that marginality focus on. And I think that happens not just when we're talking about those in poverty, but it happens in so many other contexts as well. But also interesting, um, when I was on the London Overground yesterday, um, there was an automated announcement. I don't know how long it's been part of that, but where they are now encouraging people to instead give money to the people that walk along the uh, carriages asking for small change, to instead give to a specific charity that I now can't remember off the top of my head what that charity was. But there is an evolving narrative in London around what it looks like to engage with those in poverty. And I think Bloomsbury's position in that conversation is essential. Now, I definitely don't have the answers to what that looks like, but I'm wondering how we might begin to challenge that transactional status quo particularly in this time of pandemic when it will look like for the foreseeable future we won't be able to do the things that we used to do. So I'm wondering if the panellists had any initial thoughts or uh, questions yourselves around some of the things that Simon was talking about or any ideas or suggestions that you had about things that Blues you might be able to do in the future. Unfortunately, not many ideas, but uh, I, I very much feel the challenge you, you, you talked about. And it seems to me the most difficult um, challenge to overcome is how do you create a real personal level playing field in interacting with, with people in need or in, in distress? How do you get rid of this almost unconscious bias you have in making moral judgment as to who deserves or who doesn't deserve and, and, and how lecturing one can sometimes feel in, you know, what should be the solution, but always looking down on these persons without the real consideration, respect and dignity that one should be able to, to bring. As, as someone who thinks they know better and uh, because, you know, we have a better situation and we have the power and the money that we think we somehow deserve. How, how to get rid of that at the very personal level, I think is the starting point. And then from there, you know, you come with ways in which to help, whether it's with, with money or with shelter or with training or simply with with, with moral support, but that starting point I find the most challenging. Yeah, for sure. And I think that lends itself, thank you Jean-Marc, it lends itself to what Libby was saying in the comments around a meal being a good way to begin with, to engage and befriend with the, the, the stranger, the other. Um, and I think that when Simon was talking as well, it made me think of the kind of rhetoric of no conversation about us without us. I wouldn't 
ever encourage a conversation around racial inequality without hearing from people of color and without centering the narratives around people of color in the same way that I wouldn't with LGBTQ plus inclusion, that you, you know, you have to center and privilege those voices. So, you know, we need to start exploring ways in which we can engage and center the narratives and, and prioritize and privilege the, the minority in this context, those who are experiencing poverty or homelessness. Um, and that's incredibly difficult given the dispersed nature of homelessness, the fact that it's so challenging to meet at the moment and how do you gather together. There are so many complications that we have to explore above and beyond all the things that you were just articulating. Yeah, Peter I like has also the idea shared. Of, of Libby too, that uh, if you share a meal with somebody, it's not about their homelessness anymore because you're shifting on a different uh, place and then you can listen and uh, exchange. So I think this is a good place to start because you, you bring them out of their context, which is the street, and you're not focusing on that anymore and you're focusing on something else. Yeah. Uh, Peter, thank you, Evelyn. Peter also shared um, that apparently that announcement on the overground that I alluded to has been around for about a year now, so often I use the overground. Um, and uh, it was asking for money to be donated to the Whitechapel project. Um, Solomon, Tommaso, any thoughts or reflections so far? There's lots of comments coming in on the chat, but I'll, I'll go to the panelists first. May I uh, say something? Um, I mean, um, from a from a kind of more perhaps theoretical point of view, but um, I think that uh, what what really matters in in a way is uh, the aim we set ourselves when we help the poor and those in need, uh, because you know, after all, even in ancient Rome, emperors who used to provide free food from time to time uh, to certain segments of the population. But, but the purpose of the policy was not to empower ordinary people, but rather to keep them quiet, to forestall rebellions and strengthen the institutional foundations of the empire. And there are plenty of similar examples in history. Um, whereas if we draw from a different uh, tradition, like the, the Christian social tradition, for example, uh, there we can find a real focus and real emphasis on increasing agency. Um, the, the, the big difference is that uh, between an approach which emphasizes like material well-being in order to prevent people from reacting to injustice, engaging in politics, being active citizens and so on and so forth, and a different approach which rather emphasizes the importance of welfare in order to allow people to be free, to make free and responsible choices. And so whatever policies we, we may decide to pursue, whatever arrangements we may find, I think it's worth stressing that the focus should always be in enhancing people's opportunities to do what they want. Um, and, and, and that's a very, very powerful, um, I think, message. That, that comes from, again, the, the social gospel and the Christian social tradition. Absolutely. 
Thank you, Tommaso. And I think that also lends itself into what's being said in some of the comments as well. So Sandy shared about experiences during Open Doors and the, the value of peer support groups and, and hearing from people themselves. Um, and you, Tommaso, mentioned around agency and, and giving people the power to make decision. Um, and I think there's potentially a position for Bloomsbury to play in that and, and be part of policy change and enacting change that enables people to take some agency and some control over their own lives. And then Helen sh shared as well the sort of the toilet conversation, as she's called it, the, um, when Simon mentioned earlier about um, the toilets being opened up again across uh, Westminster that came about from agencies, charities and churches, etc., who have lots of experience and expertise. So there's, there's power in collaboration and partnership. You know, Bloomsbury doesn't have to solve this by itself in the middle of London. How can we work together to bring about this, this impactful change that you were just alluding to, Tommaso? Solomon, yeah. did you have any thoughts? Yes, my thought is, um, is, 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 is to, to reflect on, on the silver and gold aspect, which is I see as very transactional and we we have become very transactional in in the way we do things nowadays we, uh, what we can give what somebody can give us and our expectation i think this lesson teaches us about being more relational we, we ought to be more relational i mean Building relationship to, to help somebody whatever whatever situation they might find themselves. I think it's very important than the transactional aspect of, of, of life. For example, the homelessness issue, you know, it, it, I mean, that's too many facets to, to that. You know, people might have the personal situation, family situation. All of those things are, are you know, the background of, of, of broken down relationship, you know, sometimes it can be family, sometimes it can be um, uh, social issues, you know, but that is also a breakdown in relationship. So what I think we should be seeking is the relationship aspect. Like what Bloomsbury could do is to focus more uh, or, or building relationship with with, 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 with with people, whether they're homeless or they, they you know, they have any other social issues that our doors are open to build relationship. I think that that's that that's what I think will will help us, you know, as 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 Christians, because building relationships I think is key to to resolving a lot of issues, you know, then the transactional aspect because we become so transactional. I think in my view, anybody you 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 meet nowadays is to be thinking about. What you can give and what they can give you. Well, there's too many expectations of a transaction than building up relationship with, with people. Thank you, Solomon. And we you know we have a perfect example of what relational ministry looks like in Christ. And we worship a God that exists in relationship. The Trinity is in relationship with the Trinity. Um, and so it, we have a perfect witness in how to, to engage with one another and, and what that model looks like. And that speaks a little bit to what um, Matthew's comment is. And I, and I won't read it all out because we don't have time, but do flick up in the chat and see what he's written. Um, he talks about a, a program um, that he watched on the BBC. And although there, there were the need for the relationship, the relationships rather, in someone's life, as well as the financial resource, 
you know, it, money only goes so far. Food, we all need. We all need these these staples. But actually, it's relationship structures that support and enable us to grow and succeed. I think all of us can look back in our lives and and note people who have been so impactful. Um, and it probably wasn't because they gave us a wad of cash. Um, it was probably because they spoke to us in a in a moment of need, or perhaps to give us a word of encouragement, or they set us on the path of of, of where we are now. And so that 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 period of that that process of relationship is is absolutely essential. Does anyone have any further closing thoughts? While I just quickly see if there are any other comments to share. There are lots of comments in the chat, so I'm not going to be able to get them through all of them, but any other comments from the panelists? In that case, there's just one comment from Ian, that again, I won't read the whole thing, um, but there's just one thing perhaps for us to consider and ponder before we move um, on in our service this morning around part of what we bring when we when we consider these conversations, our own personal baggage, perhaps, and that's the word that Ian's used. Um, what do we feel that we have to get? Is perhaps there's a level of of guilt there. Perhaps a level of um, do we need to? Re do I feel like I have to respond? Am I feeling ashamed of something? And so perhaps considering what the transformation, not only for the individual that we're trying to engage with, but what the transformation in our lives look like. And the gospel message is for everyone. So what does that, that process of transformation look like? How can we, you know, Tommaso spoke to the, the social gospel, this gospel of inclusion, um, and Solomon spoke of relationship. What does it look like for us to go on this journey together, not be givers and receivers, but all come under Christ and all find a way together to navigate these complicated questions? You all had a lot to say on this. Um, and I'm very conscious of time. So do continue to ponder. There's lots of comments that still have, are coming in the chat So feel free to keep sharing in that way. But for now, we're going to move the service on. Let us pray. Loving and merciful God, we gather before you this morning in a time of uncertainty and anxiety, but also of hope and relief as communities, as well as individuals all over the world, slowly adjust themselves to new rules, new patterns of behavior, and new ways of living together, cooperating, interacting, intermingling with each other, but also resume some of their old habits, activities, and practices. While enjoying some of the freedoms we had temporarily given up just a few months ago, may we remember the hard lessons learned and commit ourselves with renewed energy and determination to your words of love and redemption throughout this collective process of adaptation and renewal. Loving God, we pray for those who have been made vulnerable by the pandemic, experiencing new and sometimes unprecedented forms of insecurity and exclusion, fearing for their health 
the jobs, the future. Having their dreams shattered, their projects shelved, and their relationships strained. May they feel your much needed presence and find comfort in you as they strive to pick up the pieces and embark on new challenges and journeys. Loving God, we pray for those who already lived on the margins of society well before the pandemic broke out, such as the homeless in our cities, and have now been pushed even further into the background as more pressing, more visible, and often more influential interests have been taking precedence over theirs, getting the lion's share not only of our handouts, but also, and perhaps more critically, of our attention and our concerns. Loving God, we pray for those who seek to redress these and other imbalances either through volunteering or through their own profession, giving a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven you announced. We pray for the healthcare workers who help the sick and the injured regardless of their income, for the teachers and the librarians who provide kids with educational opportunities no matter where they come from, for the lawyers who offer free legal aid in the name of inalienable human rights. Finally, we pray for ourselves. May we master the energy we need to be instruments of justice, faithful to your teachings, inspired by your example, grateful for the blessings we receive every day. Amen. <laughs>